You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 12, 38 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, praise God that you are here, that I'm here. Um, I'm really thankful to be opening God's word. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And I will readily admit from the beginning, this is a hard service. We brought you into some of the realities of our financial difficulties at church and and called us to respond because we're a family. Um, And then the text that's set before us is difficult, one of judgment and wrath. But I want us to come in as a family to have ears to hear and eyes to see what the scriptures are saying to us. So I ask that you be able to do this in this moment and and see what God has for us. So we read uh, just a few verses of the larger text that's in your bulletin. I just wanted you to know that the kind of the theme of this passage of God's judgment for those who harden their hearts, that runs through all of the rest of Matthew chapter 12, but we're gonna focus in on the first part. So as we begin, let's pray together as a family. Father, in this moment of opening God's word and bringing the truth from what what you've given to us, I pray, Lord, that we can have ears to hear, that we can have eyes to see, that the spirit moves through us, Lord, that we are compelled to be sacrificial as Pastor Dave has called us, and that we will listen to these words of warning for those who harden their hearts against you, Lord. May we not ride the fence in our lives. May we be fully given to the Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you bring conviction and encouragement through your word right now. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So my grandfather died when I was a kid. And I'm sure you guys have similar stories of a grandparent dying. Uh, But I was like seven or eight years old when my grandfather died. But I remember him really well. He was hard to forget. When he walked into a room, he had a presence about him. He was a larger man, um, very kind generous to other people. One of my good memories of my grandfather was uh, we went on vacation to the beach. We, we didn't have a lot of money as a kid. We went on two vacations. I remember this specifically. And one of the vacations we went to the beach and we would be in the house getting ready for uh, play at the beach or eating cereal or something. And you could see my grandfather sitting in a chair on the beach, just staring at the ocean for hours, just sitting and listening. And that was kind of my grandfather, just like a stoic, strong personality. But there were two sides to my grandfather. My grandfather was uh, not a kind man. He was an alcoholic. He was a womanizer. He was a thief. 
and at times he was very cruel. And even as a child at seven or eight, it was clear to me that he was a hard, hard man. He was especially closed off to the things of Jesus. He wouldn't have anything to do with God. My, my grandmother was a devout Christian. She was actually the first person who shared the gospel with me. And she would go to church, but my grandfather never would. So as a child, I saw that. And as far as I could tell, his life and his soul were hardened to the gospel. He had created his own life. He'd created his own kingdom. He'd surround himself with the things that he wanted, the things he longed for. And he demanded that we all join in. He wanted nothing to do with God. And it was sad to see his hardness. But as I was reading the text today or this, this week preparing for this message, his hardness of heart against God reminded me of the Pharisees' hardness of heart. Now, they're different people. They have different pictures. Outwardly, my grandfather wasn't necessarily put together. Um, he did, in our community, seem like he was a kind and gentle man, but he was not. But the Pharisees, they were whitewashed tombs. Remember Jesus' words? They seemed to be put together. They seemed to understand like what the coming kingdom was, but inwardly they were dead and they had hardened their hearts against God. And as we open to, to Matthew chapter 12, as Timothy Paul Jones, Pastor Jones shared with us last week, this is a passage of intensity. Specifically, Jesus is under constant and malicious attacks by the Pharisees, attacks to his character, his ministry, and they are committed to destroying Jesus. One of the things I did as I was preparing this week is I did a word study on the Pharisees. Uh, I have like this computer program, pulled up a word study. And it was just verse after verse after verse of this hatred and intensity against Jesus. It was really overwhelming. Like, listen, I've read the Bible before. I know that Jesus doesn't like the Pharisees or that the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. And Jesus got tired of the attacks of the Pharisees. But to see that all in one place, the intensity of their hatred against Jesus. Let's look at just chapter 12, the chapter we're in as an example. Verse two, when the Pharisees saw this, they saw Jesus performing miracles. They said to him, see, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, trying to trap him. Verse nine, moving on from there, he entered their synagogues. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And finally in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. So it's a crazy, just this one chapter, you can see the intensity of hatred toward Jesus. It's like they're following him around. These dudes are crazy. They're like stalkers. They're not seeking to learn from Jesus or to be with him. They're looking at a chance to catch him, to trap him, to humiliate him. But why? Why did these men go to such an effort to give such a part of their lives and their work to destroy one man? And I think it's important that we know that all of chapter 12 and the larger context is a battle over kingdoms. It's a kingdom battle. Jesus was ushering in a new kingdom of forgiveness and life. Jesus was inviting everyone to come and join him in this new kingdom. But the Pharisees refused. Because here's the deal. The, the new kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus had ushered in, was a threat to the world of the Pharisees. They had created this neat and clean world where they were in control. Theirs was a kingdom of rules and manipulation. Theirs was a kingdom of self. But here's the deal. Theirs was a miserable kingdom. It's miserable. There's no life in it. But it was theirs. They owned it. They belonged to it. They ruled it. And they would do whatever it took to keep their kingdom even to kill the son of God. 
So as we get to verse 39, we see the attacks on Jesus continue. He's warning them, right? All throughout this chapter, he's warning them. He's giving them signs. He's preaching the good news. Yet they're continuing to attack him. Verse 38, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, at first reading of this text, you would say, well, this seems legit. They're coming to Jesus and they just, they want to see a sign. But we need to remember that Jesus knows the hearts of these men. He knows our hearts. He knows the intentions, the things that we long for. So even though their words seem pure, their intentions were not pure. They were seeking to trap and destroy Jesus. You know, as we, we think about this idea of people coming to Jesus and asking him questions and wanting a sign, I, I'm reminded of our text several weeks back from Matthew chapter 11. Do you, if you remember that, John the Baptist is arrested. He's in prison. He has lots of time to think, to meditate on his life and what's happening. And he begins to have doubts. He begins to question. He begins to wonder. And he sends some of his disciples and they, they say this to Jesus. Are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with the leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So what the Pharisees wanted was a sign. And when John asked, are you the one? Jesus doesn't ask him directly. He says, what have you seen? And he begins to list the goodness of God poured out on people all around John, these miraculous things. And here is a difference between what John asked for in that moment of doubt and question and what the Pharisees were asking for. Because John loved Jesus and his heart posture was one of brokenness and eagerness. He was questioning from a broken, longing heart. But what the Pharisees were seeking to do was to humiliate him. Jesus was more than willing to meet John in his doubts and his questions. Jesus was not, however, willing to play the game of the Pharisees. Jesus was not a puppet of the Pharisees. He was not a performer for his enemies. He was not there to entertain. Jesus came to put the love of God on display for the whole world to see, to see him for who he truly is, which is the savior of the world. And church, I want us to know this morning that it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to come to God with questions. God deeply loves you and he is big enough for the questions and the doubts and the struggles that you have. So no matter what you've done or what you think or how far you've run away, God is big enough to handle those things. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What this passage is saying is that you can have questions, but what it is saying is that you must not harden your hearts to Jesus and his kingdom. So Jesus knows our hearts. He knows that we are broken vessels in need of him that often doubt, that often have questions. And he's okay with that. But he is warning us and the Pharisees that we must not harden ourselves against Jesus. The fact that judgment is a reality for those who harden their hearts against God. The Pharisees were not just testing Jesus, they had hardened their hearts. It was more than just a challenge. They were continually hardening their hearts against him. And as we read this this passage in a larger context, we can see that Jesus is getting fed up with the attacks. So he won't play their game. He won't give them these signs from heaven, but he ends up giving them a sign. But what he reminds them is that 
if they continue in this path, if they continue to harden their hearts, their end will be judgment and wrath. Now, again, this is a really hard message. But those who do not follow Jesus, those who do not embrace the kingdom of God will face judgment. And Jesus gives us and, and the Pharisees two pictures of what that judgment is. Look in verse 41. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So if we'll remember back to the story of Jonah, go back to the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Jonah is this man of God who faithfully preaches and gives the word of God to his people. But then God calls him to go to his enemies. These were wretched people who hurt and persecuted God's people. But God in his kindness pulled out Jonah and says, go and preach repentance to Nineveh. But Jonah refused. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. He gets on a boat, goes as far away as he can. This big storm happens. And by God's grace, a a fish swallows him, literally spending three days in the belly of a fish. And then the fish spits him out on dry land. And Jonah walks in to Nineveh and he preaches the good news. He walks into the city and he calls everyone to turn and repent. And guess what happens? They did. Everybody. Every single person from the greatest until the least listened to the message of repentance and turned to God. Look at Jonah 3 verse 4. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest to the least. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So remember, Nineveh is a wicked nation, an enemy of God and his people. But when they heard the warnings of judgment, what they did, how they responded was they turned to God and were saved. But not the Pharisees. Not the Pharisees. Despite warning after warning after warning, the Pharisees hardened their hearts against God and they chose their own kingdom. Jesus gives another example in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus gives another example of someone who came from a distant land, Queen of Sheba, who is from a kingdom in modern-day Yemen. So if Yemen is a small country kind of on the peninsula in Saudi Arabia. She either came from Yemen or Ethiopia. There's kind of a debate of where she came from. But she came from a long way because she had heard of God's greatness and the greatness of the King of Solomon. So she comes in with her, her riches, and she comes in with her questions, and she sits at the feet of Solomon, and she asks questions in eagerness with a heart posture to learn. And what she received was great wisdom from, from Solomon, but also a picture of God's goodness and glory. Here's the crazy thing. This, this woman who comes from a distant land with her questions, she gets her questions answered, but she goes back with a relationship with the one true God. And here's the point. God is raising up the nations around Israel as testimonies to his greatness. In fact, this whole section is referring back to a promise that Jesus had given earlier in Matthew. If you remember from uh, Timothy Paul Jones' sermon last week, he read from Isaiah 42 that Jesus quotes. Let's let's read just a, a piece of it together. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. The nations will put their hope in his name. Maybe for us, hearing this passage is old hat, right? Especially the church like Sojourn where we like preach the nations, we send people to the nations. But for Jesus to stand before the Pharisees and give them a word of condemnation and warning, and he uses the nations as a model of people who have turned to God would be deeply offensive. But that is the beauty of God's gospel, that the nations were indeed putting their hope in God, but not the Pharisees. The nation of Israel should have been the ones who embraced their Messiah. They should have been the ones who heard the message and and saw the miracles of Jesus and run to him, but they rejected him. But the nations embraced him and God gave the kingdom to the nations. So here's the amazing thing. God's kingdom is a kingdom of diversity. And you hear us say that all the time. We want to be a church of diversity. That's not something we made up. That's not something because we're maybe in a unique context, but it's an outworking of the gospel itself is we are a people, the church universal and local is called to be a church of differences and diversity, that the kingdom is of all nations and all cultures and all people. Often the people that we think should fit into the kingdom, like the Pharisees, are the people who choose their own kingdom. And it was the same was true in Jesus' day. You know, if we were, if we were alive during Jesus' day and we were walking around as, as Jews, we would assume that God would have come for the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, but he didn't. He came for the broken and the marginalized, people probably like you and I. That's who the kingdom is given to. And as we think about what it means to be a church, a church that is created in diversity, we are a people that that don't fit. We don't fit together. Only by God's grace and power can we come into this room week after week and celebrate the unity that we have together. We are a people that do not fit together except that we do fit together. Think about the Ninevites. The Ninevites were people from modern day Iraq who were one of God's greatest enemies, yet God pursued them in his love and invited them into the kingdom. Think about the Queen of Sheba. She was a woman who came from the ends of earth, a woman of color who came to Solomon with a posture of learning and eagerness and left with a relationship with the one true God, invited into the kingdom. Or even think about the followers of the New Testament. Think about you reading the Gospels, you read the book of Acts, and you see the people who followed Jesus and came into the kingdom. It's a group of ragtag people, fishermen, blue-collar workers, prostitutes, tax collectors, rich, poor. They come and they are unified as the people of God. And how are they unified? How do they come together? Only by Jesus. That's the only thing that unifies the people of the New Testament. And what about us? What about us as a church? I want you to just look around for a second, literally. Just look around at the people around you. Guess what? We do not fit. We do not make sense to the people around us. We are a church made up of people from every possible walk of life, multiple ethnicities, different languages and cultures, rich, poor together, Democratic and Republican sitting side by side, and it's confusing to the world. And that's the beauty of God's design. God actually tells us that when we as a church are unified, it is a testimony to his goodness and glory. 
And that's the call for us. Why, why would we set aside our differences, set aside some of our preferences of worship and the way we do church in order to be family together? Because we are called to be a gritty people who put the gritty love of God on display for the world to see. We are unified around Jesus and his kingdom. We are brought into a new kingdom that does not make sense, does not, uh, it's not logical to us, but there's beauty in it. The Ninevites got it, the Queen of Sheba got it, the early church got it, but not everyone does get it. Not everyone understands, or not even everyone wants to understand. And as hard as it is to hear, those who reject God and his kingdom will face judgment. They'll face God's wrath. Now, when I, when I mention God's wrath or his judgment, what comes to mind? Maybe you've been on a college campus or you go to a big event and there's a group of people with a megaphone and a sign screaming at people. That's what comes to mind. Or maybe you have a friend or a family member who their bent of religion is kind of hellfire and brimstone or anger. Or maybe just simply in your heart of hearts, you can't reconcile God's love and his judgment at the same time. So wherever you find yourself today, when you hear of wrath and judgment, we can all agree that this is a difficult topic to tackle. But as Christians, we must believe that judgment is real because without judgment and wrath, the cross makes no sense. If there is not judgment and consequence for our willing rebellion against God, why did Jesus come? What's the point? Jesus came and gave his life for us because we were a sinful, rebellious people. I say that corporately. We are all sinful, rebellious people. But I say that to you. You have willingly chosen to rebel against God. And there's consequence for rebellion. We were all headed to judgment for our willing rebellion against God. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for a person to die once and after this, judgment. It's important to know when I talk about judgment, uh, his anger against sin, it's not the same kind of anger and judgment that we can experience as sinful and broken people. Often our experience of anger is uncontrolled. It can be destructive. Um, it's things like jealousy and irritability and pride and self-centeredness that wells up in our heart. So if you are a parent in this room, you have probably gotten really angry with your kids, right? Can I get an amen? amen? If you are married in this room, you have probably gotten really angry with your spouse, right? Can I get an amen? Okay. If you have a pulse, you have probably gotten really angry with people in your life. Because when you take two sinners and you put them together, it creates friction. And what comes out of us with wrath and anger is not a pretty sight. But that is not what we're talking about. God's wrath can only come from his perfect character. All that God does and is, including his wrath, is good, holy, and right. So instead of us thinking of God's wrath in a, in a negative light, we need to fight to, to set our minds on the truth that God's wrath and judgment are good and right because they are an outworking of his justice and love. So when I was a kid, I was uh, just an early teenager. Well, we were living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. I was uh, raised by a single mom and my brother just started to drive and I had a car accident, thrown from the car, snapped his neck, had spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. 
So when I was 14 years old, our life turned upside down. So my whole life has been like trying to love and to care for my brother. And I've watched my brother struggle his whole life, struggle to eat, struggle to do normal everyday things, struggle to hold a job, struggle to have friends, struggle to deal with the the physical pain that being in a wheelchair has caused him. And there's a, a, a dark day not too many years ago where my brother's, one of his best friends, he didn't always make the best friends in hindsight, one of his best friends uh, threw my brother out of his wheelchair and stole his pain medication. He threw him to the ground in an empty parking lot. He beat him senseless and he left him to suffer alone. Horrible, horrible. Thankfully, just days later, my brother's attacker was arrested. He was soon prosecuted and he was put in jail. So I know our justice system doesn't always work, but at this time it did, praise God. But let me ask you, was it wrong for the judge to punish my brother's attacker for his crime? Was that wrong? Of course not. You can't say that, right? Because I'm looking at you. (laughs) Of course not. We're like, no, justice. You can't push a guy out of a wheelchair and steal his pain medication and beat him. Like something has to be done about that. It was... Difficult and dark, but in a similar way, God's judgment against sin and against sinners is the outworking of his just character. He sees justice and pain and suffering all around us, and God's longing is to make wrong things right. It is an outworking of his commitment to bring about justice for those who suffer injustice. So as hard as it is to understand God's wrath and judgment, As Christians, we need to press into it and know that those who willingly rebel against God, which it's all of us, and who harden our hearts against God will be judged for our sins. And it's in this context that Jesus speaks words of warning to the Pharisees. Look at verse 39. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So they they were trying to trap Jesus and they wanted a sign from heaven. They're saying, prove yourself. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to play your games, but I will give you a sign. The foreshadowing of what happened through the prophet Jonah when he was swallowed by a fish his salvation. He was buried in the belly of the fish and he was spit out on dry ground to give hope to Nineveh. In the same way, the son of man will die on the cross, be buried in the earth and will resurrect to bring hope to the world. The sign of Jonah is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So what the Pharisees wanted was this sign from heaven. What God, what Jesus gave him was himself. You want a sign? Here I am. Here I am. I will be put on a cross, I will be buried in the earth, and I will resurrect. That is the sign that you will get. And even within these words of judgment, Jesus is inviting us to life because it's through the cross and the resurrection that make life in the kingdom possible. Jesus gives two different times. He is reminding the Pharisees, he's reminding us in the midst of judgment that something greater has come. Verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Church, this is amazing news. Jesus is greater than the law. We see that over and over again in the scripture. People long for law, they long for rules, they want a way of life, and Jesus gives them himself. Jesus is greater than any wisdom that we could travel across the world to find. He's greater than any power or riches than we could discover. He's greater than that job that you long for or that girl or that boy that you hope to court. He is greater than any hidden desire or longing that your heart has. Jesus is greater. Jesus has come. And in the midst of a a warning of judgment that if you harden your heart against Jesus and his kingdom, you will suffer death and destruction, but something greater has come. And I want you to hear the invitation from Jesus himself, that there is something greater that he is offering you. Church, there is hope in a difficult passage, but in the midst of pending judgment, God meets us with his mercy. God's wrath against sin is real, but those who embrace God and his kingdom, he gives life. I love Ephesians chapter 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So in the midst of our sin and our judgment and our willing rebellion against God, I love this passage, but God, God enters into our story and he pours out his mercy and his grace on us, undeserving sinners. There is hope in the midst of a warning of judgment. Think about who wrote this passage, Ephesians. Paul, he was a Pharisee, right? The very people that Jesus was speaking to can write a passage like this. He had hardened himself against God and his Messiah. He busted into homes, Paul did. He drug out Christians. He had them beat. He had them executed. He was a persecutor of the faith. Yet God met him and took his hard heart and he softened it. It's a beautiful picture of what God is able to do in the midst of a warning of judgment. The love of God is so rich. It is so deep. We were God's enemies, but he has made us his friends. He's made us his family. So if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, praise God, we want you to be here. But this is a warning for you. Those who harden their hearts against God will be judged. If you are here today and you sense that your heart is hardening, you can feel it. You have questions and you're, you're turning away from God. Instead of turning toward God like John the Baptist, you're turning away from God. If Jesus is not your king and his kingdom is a joke to you, be warned, judgment and death are coming. Do not be like the Pharisees. God will not be mocked. Turn your face to the one who has poured out his love on you. Embrace Jesus and his kingdom. Or if you're here today and you're seeking to ride the fence, maybe you grew up in church or you made a profession of faith, but your, your, your life, your kingdom is all about self and not about him, it's a warning for you too. When it comes to Jesus, you cannot ride the fence. There is no fence riding. You can't keep a foot in your kingdom and a foot in God's kingdom. God expects all of you 
every bit. So this is a warning to you. You can't ride the fence. He's inviting you to be all in, all in with him. So if you remember my grandfather, I just told you the story. If you forgot it, come on, guys. You remember my grandfather? Um, Hard man. He made a kingdom for himself. Very harsh with my family. Uh, But I I remember hearing the story later in life. As an old man, he was sitting in front of the TV by himself, flipping through the channels. And he came to a televised revival. Now my grandfather would very quickly go past that. But for some reason, he stopped. And he listened. By God's grace, this man preached the gospel. And my grandfather put his trust in Jesus. The very end of his life, he put his trust in Jesus. Just two weeks later, my grandfather died. But in those two weeks, you could see his heart had changed. He was a different man and he belonged in the kingdom of God. But how sad is it that it took him his whole life of hardening his heart to come to Jesus. Think about all the years he wasted. Think about all the harm he caused. So if you're in this room and you have hardened your heart to Jesus, do not wait. Do not wait another moment. Give your life to Jesus. Do not be like my grandfather and you get to experience Jesus for two weeks before you die. You can follow Jesus today. Because here's the lesson. We can never, ever go too far, run too far, fight too hard against God and his kingdom where he can't find us. It doesn't matter how hard your heart is, he can bust through. You may not believe that, but he can and he does. So my plea to you is run to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, give your life to him. Grab a Christian beside you. Maybe it's someone who invited you or maybe it's a pastor or maybe you've been coming here for a long time and you realize in this moment that you are not a Christian. Believe, run to him. Or if you're riding that fence, it's time to get off the fence and jump into the kingdom. Run to Jesus and embrace his kingdom. And one of the great things he did before Jesus left is he gave the church a reminder that we belong to him and his kingdom in communion. Right before he was betrayed and he was executed, he sat with those who were all in. His disciples, they'd given everything to be with him. No riding the fence. And he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Establishing a new kingdom. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you eat and you drink, you were testifying to my kingdom. So here at Sojourn, we have a practice of coming forward to communion and breaking off a piece of the bread or dipping it in the wine or juice, here's what I want you to do. As you come forward, I want it to be a physical sign of you coming to Jesus. You are coming to his broken body and his blood shed for you. Take these moments to to run to him, whether it's to Jesus for the first time, to coming back to him after a long time, or just thanking him that you have been made right with God and that judgment is no longer your story. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.